time once again for another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Managing Editor of the CRS and your host, Karen Stanbridge. In this program, we'll hear from scholars who have contributed work to the August 2021 issue of the journal. Pop culture characterizes millennials as a generation of young people who have been overindulged by their so-called helicopter parents. But do parents really spend more time with their kids these days than they did in the past? Melissa Milkey, Dana Ray, and their colleagues looked at the Canadian data and discovered some interesting trends. And what are the experiences of racialized students at Canadian universities? Awish Haslam and Kieran Maingott provide an overview of the student essays featured in the Symposium on Systemic Racism in Sociology Departments. But first, we'll hear from a sociologist who is bridging pure sociology and social psychology to build a theoretical framework we can use to better explain interpersonal conflicts. Let's hear what he has to say. Thanks for having me, Karen. My name is Joe Mikowski. I'm a professor of sociology at the King's University College at the University of Western Ontario. I've studied uh, a lot of different issues, but I suppose my specialty really surrounds the issues of conflict and violence, as well as theory development. Dr. Mikowski's article, An Integrated Theoretical Framework to Explain Interpersonal Moralistic Conflict, appears in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. What inspires a sociologist to undertake theoretical work of this nature? Now, as I mentioned, I specialize in the study of conflict and violence in general, but especially historically the use of violence as a mechanism of social control or a way to manage conflicts. But I think the even more fundamental question that I'm trying to address or have started to address through that particular article was what explains why conflicts emerge in the first place? In other words, not just how do we manage or handle conflicts, but why do we even have such conflicts emerging in the first place? So that was the sort of the main inspiration or the, the guiding idea behind the piece. It's not a small question, but social thinkers have always pondered the big questions. Social theorists like Mikowski try to address these kinds of questions by creating frameworks applicable across like cases. Essentially, it's an exercise in, in theory building, right? Developing sociological theory to try to explain human social behavior. Uh, but I was trained in part in the school of what's called pure sociology, which looks at the social geometries of social configurations to explain variations in social life, such as how law behaves. But several years ago, some various key events and influences changed my way of thinking, if you will, mid-career. And I started to change my uh, focus to look more deeply below the surface of social structures to study the underlying mechanisms that produce the energy required to affect social movements and change. And in short, I guess I, I realized that we needed as sociologists to sort of bring back in sentient cognitive human beings to really get at explaining why people behave as they do in their different social settings and uh, through the course of their social interactions. So I guess what, I, what I'm saying in short is that I've been intentionally trying to build bridges in my work between structure and agency, between pure sociology and social psychology, uh, between social networks and human beings with various statuses who encounter each other within different social fields who exchange energy 
that's rooted in their cultural expectations and their normative and narrative framings of the human experience. That gap between structure and agency has perplexed sociologists for a long time. In Mikowski's case, seeking answers has compelled him to take a close look at individual behaviors and psychology for clues to explain the foundations of broader social conflict. I guess the core question is essentially what explains the emergence of interpersonal moralistic conflict? So why do people develop their grievances in the first place? Why do people in effect have a problem with other people or feel like they've been wronged in some way or another? Essentially, it's an answer or an attempt to start an answer to the question of, you know, have you got a problem with that? If somebody asks you that question, they're, they're probably aggrieved in some fashion. And if your response is, yes, I have a problem with that, well, then that's what I'm talking about. That's what I mean by interpersonal moralistic conflict. So moralistic conflict essentially refers to those situations where people believe or perceive they've been wronged or offended in some fashion or another. So that's what I wanted to deal with. Why, why do people uh, get aggrieved in the first place and under what conditions and what are the mechanisms that drive those, those grievances? Training his sights on individual moralistic conflict, Mikowski identifies what makes human conflicts unique, our capacity and need to justify our actions. We as human beings are the justifying animal. This is really what distinguishes us from all other animals. And one way to think about this is to understand that, you know, the lion, the predator lion who goes out and, you know, kills a zebra, for example, and drags it back to the, the pride, doesn't have to justify the killing of the zebra. Whereas human beings, everything we do requires not just the behavioral aspect or component, but we also have to explain to people and rationalize and justify why we're doing what we're doing. And of course, if our justification systems don't align, this is what creates the, the underlying conflicts. And that's why, because we are different beings located at different positions within social fields and cultural fields relative to each other, we're constantly finding fault or finding that people are behaving in ways that contradict perhaps our own normative expectations and or at the very least, they'll challenge our justifications, our rationales for doing what we're doing. But again, it's the nature of our social relationships with each other that goes such a long way to determining how we evaluate the justification system. I think this is at the core of what explains why human conflict exists in so many different forms across cultures, historically, around the world. Mikowski lays out his thinking on this in the article and how it relates to his larger goal of building a theory to help account for and understand large-scale grievance-based conflicts. He has, however, only begun the journey, as he explains. This is really just a first step and very limited in, in its current formation. But the idea is to develop meaningful and testable ideas with respect to why conflicts emerge at the interpersonal level and more generally why people behave as they do. So I say a first step because I don't really situate the analysis and the, the theory, the, the propositions that I offer explicitly within a social field framework and that's the direction that my work has taken and uh, which I haven't published on as yet. The theory, if you will, as presented is still too static and requires more elaboration in terms of the dynamic aspects of how people interact with each other within their social fields. But the bottom line is, is I'm interested in both explicating and understanding the social forces as well as the social and psychological forces that produce actual behavioral 
outcomes. And ultimately, the theory, I think, requires uh, a bit more formalism and even mathematical grounding that I've not yet provided, but that's what's coming down the road. Mikowski's theory may be at its beginning stages, but he broaches some realities of interpersonal conflict that bode well for its future development. I'd like the readers to take away the, the notion that conflict's omnipresent. You can't be a social being without encountering conflict of various kinds along the way. But to understand that the reason that we experience conflicts and have conflicts and grievances with other people uh, reflects a combination of both social and uh, cultural locations. Where are we situated to the person or the people with whom we're interacting? What are their statuses? What are our statuses? And how does that affect the social judgments that we render? Because we're these constantly evaluative creatures as human beings, and we're evaluating at two levels, I think, simultaneously and consistently, often unconsciously, both evaluating people in terms of our relative statuses compared to them. And that's, this is where the sort of intersectionality framework, I think, has tremendous relevance. But we're also evaluating them, and based on our status differences, this affects our normative expectations and how we actually evaluate behaviors. So in short, what I'm saying is that uh, depending upon our relation to other people within a social field, we'll actually render very different judgments of precisely the same behavior because it's evaluated differently depending upon the nature of our social relationship with that person. Read the article, An Integrated Theoretical Framework to Explain Interpersonal Moralistic Conflict by Joseph Mikowski in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. How many times have you heard this? When I was young, my parents threw me outside in the morning, and I didn't go home until they called me for dinner. Everyone seems to have the sense that, these days, parents spend way more time with and around their kids than they did in the past. But do they? And if it's true, why is that the case? My next guests wanted to find out. Hi, I'm Melissa Milkey. I'm a professor at the University of Toronto, and I'm also the president currently of the Work Family Researchers Network. Hi, I'm Dana Ray. I'm a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of Toronto. Milkey, Ray, and their colleagues, Julia Ingenfeld and Irene Bookman, have an article in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology titled, Beyond Child Care, Changes in the Amount and Types of Parent-Child Time Over Three Decades. Dr. Milkey explains why it's important to examine the time parents and kids spend together more closely. We've seen massive changes really in how women and men spend their time over the past decades, particularly for mothers. They've entered the labor force in greater numbers. They've spent more hours working uh, for pay for quite some time now. And Linked to this, we see that fathers have become more involved in child rearing, again, across generations. So really, it's a social problem in a sense of, you know, who's caring for children and who's raising that next generation. And as well, it relates to people's quality of life in terms of how they're allocating their time across different institutions and, and with different groups of people. So um, given that, we were really motivated to think about, in this case, not just time parents spend in what we call childcare. We wanted to know sort of the bigger picture because that's not the whole of children's time um, with parents, as uh, Dana will probably explain. But really, what about 
all the time that parents are with children, when they're just simply around across parents' lives, activities that they do day to day. So we really just wanted to know the bigger picture that's really important for setting out the landscape of being able to describe a big chunk of Canadians' lives. Here, Dana Ray outlines the questions tackled by the research team. We had three research questions that we were interested in exploring. The first is that we were interested in the trends of the quantity of parent-child time. So not just in childcare, as Melissa just said, but also in the total time that parents are spending with or in the company of their children. So we wanted to map out those trends starting from the 1980s, which is the earliest data that we have in Canada on this. The second is that we wanted to know in what types of activities parents spent their time in the company of children. So were they interacting directly with children in this childcare? Were they maybe having family dinners? Were they driving kids to and from activities? Were they multitasking, helping kids with homework and then doing their own housework? And finally, we were interested in what was driving these trends in parent-child time since the 1980s. Were there compositional changes in the Canadian population of parents? So maybe mother's labor force participation had gone up or were these changes behavioral? So was this a cultural or societal shift that might make parents more inclined to be with children compared to the past? To assess how parent-child time has changed over the past 30 years, the team drew on some unique data. Yes, so we used the Canadian General Social Survey on time use, which had six cross-sectional waves from 1986 all the way till 2015. And this is the public use microdata files that were coming from StatsCan. So we looked at parents who were living with at least one of their own children in the household who was under 15 years old. And the reason the GSS on time use is so important for studying parent-child time is that it includes time diaries. So one individual per household would try to recall the activities that they did over a period of 24 hours on a designated day. Respondents are asked to record things like what they were doing, who was with them, where they were, and in some cases they're asked to record things like multitasking or their feelings about what they were doing at the time as well. But what really makes the time diaries useful for this paper was that we wanted to know who else was with the parent, and in particular was the child with the parent. So when parents were filling out their time diary of what they were doing, they would also report whether they had a child with them. And that's what we used to create this measure of total co-present time, which, as Melissa's already introduced, scholars have tried to measure where children are around parents but not necessarily interacting. Having determined their dependent variable, Ray, Milky, and their colleagues set out to measure whether or not co-present time has increased, and if so, why? Given that we're interested in the trends and the types of different activities, we looked at this descriptively for mothers and for fathers. And then we used Kitagawa decomposition, which is commonly known as Blinder Oaxaca decomposition, to see how much of the change in time, parents' time with children since 1986 could be attributed to compositional changes. So, like I mentioned before, education or labor force participation and how much of the change in these time trends could be attributed to behavioral changes, which could be driven by social change. But, and we want to be cautious about this because it could also be these changes are driven by some sort of unmeasured parental characteristics. 
So, are the folks who say parents are around kids way more than they were 30 years ago, right? Dana Ray reveals their results. We did see that parents' total co-present time with children has increased since 1986. So, similarly to what previous research has found about trends in childcare time, where parents are investing more and more time in childcare over this time period. We also found that they're spending more time in general, more of this co-present time with children. And interestingly, both mothers and fathers saw a similar increase. But what this means is that although they've both increased their time investment in children, the gender gap has remained fairly consistent in that mothers are still spending significantly more co-present time with children than fathers are. The second research question about how is this playing out in day-to-day life, we found that this time with children wasn't just in childcare activities. We also saw that parents changed their time and increased their time in all other activities when kids were present. So really what this shows is that mothers and fathers are not just spending more time in childcare with children, but they're spending more time in their daily lives with children present overall. And then the third outcome that we wanted to highlight is that these rises in parent-child time do seem to be driven by behavioral changes for both mothers and fathers. And this is true of both the child care activities, but also the total co-present time. And so what we speculate is that this might be linked to widespread norms of intensive parenting, which encourage parents to invest time and energy into their children. We also saw that for fathers, there was some effective compositional changes. So fathers may be working slightly less hours, which increases their time with children. For mothers, it's a bit mixed. Things like mother's rising education is linked to this increase in total co-present time with children. But things like their rising employment and work hours over this time period actually had a dampening effect by reducing the amount of time they would be expected to spend. So the behavioral changes actually outstrip some of these trends that we've seen, like women moving more into the paid labor force, especially into full-time work. Parents are spending more time with their kids than they did in the past. And it appears that this change is being driven by what the researchers call behavioral change. That is, parents, and especially mothers, are choosing to do this, even though they may be spending more time working outside the home than ever before. The next question is, why? Melissa Milkey ponders the implications of these results. This is really important knowledge to have, to really understand Canadian parents' lives with children and how that's changed. And really, we didn't have the full picture when we're just looking at that one narrow band of activities that we call childcare. Why would parents' time with children and having children around them have changed. We can't, We don't have all the answers just from the study, but is it the characteristics that parents have changed, right? Or this behavioral change, which, you know, something about the world that parents are parenting in makes parents be more likely to have their kids around them, to think about their kids and have them nearby. So this really opens up and provides a lot more detail on what parents are doing in the presence of children. So we could... We could imagine quite a few implications of the research in general. What are the potential positives and negatives to this additional time that we see that parents have? To some degree, it may indicate this intensification of parenting in the Western world that we've seen in some other studies. 
we want to say, oh, this is, this is great. You know, we see this more present parent, but I think we, we don't know a lot that this gives us more questions to ponder. Our parents, perhaps they're with their children more, but maybe they're with their friends less often, for example. And we know that there's a real importance to people beyond the dyad of the mother child or the father child or beyond the nuclear family. And how do these findings suggest, what does it suggest about the overall well-being, say, of, of mothers and fathers and children? You can find the article, Beyond Child Care, Changes in the Amount and Types of Parent-Child Time Over Three Decades, by Melissa Milkey, Dana Ray, Julia Ingenfeld, and Irene Bookman, in the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. This is not a time to commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology. And it's time once again to see who's committing sociology in the Committing Sociology section of the Canadian Review of Sociology. It's sociology students, undergraduate and graduate, who hold the stage in this issue. Uh, my name is Awish Aslam, and I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Sociology at the University of Western Ontario. And uh, yeah, my name is Kieran. Uh, I am a master's candidate currently at the School of Public Policy at Carleton University. Aslam and Maingott are editors of the Symposium on Student Voices on Systemic Racism within Sociology Departments. The symposium arose out of a recent webinar organized by the Student Subcommittee of the Canadian Sociological Association. This symposium really came from a lot of the conversation that happened at that event. A lot of the themes that came out from the symposium were things that also were raised by the 50 plus students that were in attendance at that event from across Canada. The pieces, or most of them, I should say, were actually written by some of the panelists of that event that we ran around racism and systemic racism in the academy. That was really a huge motivator. We really wanted to have a first voice perspective of these students who had really deep-rooted and rich discussions to have and offer around both their experiences in the academy and the direction they see action needing to be taken around racism and equity and liberatory study within sociology departments across Canada. The symposium begins by placing the essays in context. The introduction just gives an overview again of the event and then we emphasize really that the point is not only to share students' perspectives and their experiences, but also to call attention to how students would like to see these issues addressed and the sort of change that they would like to see sociologists engage with. Karen Maingott provides an overview of the first essay. The first essay, written by Kayon Christie and Gabrielle Etienne. They are really explaining how white supremacy's command over knowledge production and validation is fundamental to the disqualification of the Black intellectual tradition and continues to be sort of a core tenant of the Western-style education and academy. Their experiences really reflect that even in so-called inclusionary and somewhat diverse environments, institutions really uphold capitalist, white supremacist, colonial, and hetero ways of knowing. Anti-Blackness is deep-rooted in uh, sociology departments by excluding, suppressing, and subjugating the intellectual traditions and contributions of Black scholars. The piece really illustrates how Black scholars are denied recognition as knowers, which leaves graduate students like themselves, who really have a desire to engage in critical Black thought, 
and it really pressures them into working within dominant paradigms. Kayon and Gabriel problematize how this really inherent uh, epistemological violence makes it challenging for Black graduate students to attain the support needed to really develop deep methodological and theoretical analysis that is required to investigate the vastness of Black life. Kayon and Gabriel conclude that Despite words and commitments from institutions and departments, they really mean little if they don't materialize a liberatory scholarship for Black people and continue to support the struggle towards freedom that is being led by Black scholars. Awisha Aslam gives brief summaries of the remaining two essays. Turning to the second essay, This Space Is Not For Me, BIPOC Identities in Academic Spaces, authored by Kristen Kulsar and Shayan Thomas. Kristen and Cheyenne draw on findings from peer feedback sessions that were organized to capture the experiences and perspectives of racialized and Indigenous undergraduate and graduate students at Carleton University. In their essay outline, three key themes that came up. First, the apprehension among students about participating in the sessions because of previous efforts they'd made sharing experiences with faculty and staff that led to no visible changes or improvement. Another key theme was about the lack of representation of people of color among faculty, staff, and scholarship included in the curriculum. The most immediate cause for the distress and unease in academia was the treatment from faculty and staff within their own department, which they described through the use of the concept microaggressions the everyday indignities they were subject to from faculty and staff affected their perceptions of belonging in academic settings and their personal well-being. And they conclude their essay with three recommendations for the department, hiring more racialized and Indigenous faculty and support staff, incorporating course material that reflects diverse backgrounds, experiences, and knowledges, and requiring all faculty, staff, and teaching assistants to complete anti-colonial and anti-racist training to ensure critical awareness, commitment to justice, and safety. Um, finally, in Pedro Nasiri's essay titled Disorienting Sociology Towards a Critical Phenomenology of Whiteness, they ask, what does institutional whiteness do and what tools does critical phenomenology offer us to both conceptualize and challenge institutional whiteness in the academy? Pedram draws on their own experiences in their graduate program to demonstrate the importance of how spaces are shaped by the gathering of white bodies and not others. Pedram also discusses how the focus on scholarly materials produced by white academics orient bodies to institutional whiteness through the repetition of these social acts, and how this reflects broader linkages of the influence and power of colonialism, imperialism, and whiteness in the academy. Disorienting moments that question or disrupt the taken-for-granted assumptions of institutional whiteness are important precisely because they call existing institutional arrangements into question. They acknowledge, however, that working against the reproduction of whiteness demands considerable labor of racialized students that often exhaust them. One way that they've worked to disorient and find relief from the impacts of institutional whiteness through the creation of intentional spaces that nurture intellectual relationships between people of color. As members of the student subcommittee that hosted the event that spawned the symposium, and as sociology grad students themselves, Aslam and Maingod are reflective about their own experiences. i just like to emphasize what all of the authors said in terms of the amount of work that students put into this. And 
the challenges that they have to deal with every day, but also the hostility and retaliation that can sometimes come in response to students sharing these sort of concerns. And so I think it's really important to listen to the voices of racialized students um, because I, I think it's just really important to recognize that it's not easy for students to share these perspectives for multiple reasons. And then as well, just the fact that it's important to also see students coming together, building those lines of solidarity to, to make sure that these issues are addressed. From my perspective, as someone who supported this endeavor as a white person, I think my is really for white students who interact with this symposium to really reflect on the experiences that were shared and the work currently being done in your department and how you can be allying yourself with it and being coming an accomplice to it, I think is really a critical move for any white scholar wishing to help create the better conditions in their environment. The Symposium on Student Voices on Systemic Racism within Sociology Departments makes up the Committing Sociology section of the August 2021 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. And we've come to the end of another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. More programs and features are on their way, so stay tuned. I'm Karen Stanbridge. <laughs>